With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Brand are experts in agriculture, covering your equipment, parts, and service needs to help you succeed in your field. From behind the stumps to behind the mic, nothing gets past Smithy. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Morena, New Zealand, good morning to you, 9.03, yes, and uh, how do we compete after Israel Dag's uh, warm welcome home this morning? Well, we'll give it our best shot. It is uh, a show brought to you by Brandt, of course, your local John Deere equipment supplier, the Green Machines, uh, 17 branches throughout the North Island, all your agricultural requirements, uh, get hold of uh, the great staff at uh, your local branch uh, for any of your needs this morning. We shall be uh, catching up with Grant Elliott, uh, who's been commentating, of course, in Pakistan. Asked him a few questions, and uh, we'll play those answers for you as well. Uh, we've got some uh, audio for uh, from after the game as well. Uh, then we're nine, just after 9.30, we're going to talk to Brian Finn. Now, uh, rugby people will remember Brian Finn, uh, former New Zealand rugby comms and media chief. He was also with the All Blacks for a long period of time, but... Brian's latest piece for The Bounce uh, looks at the cost and reality of Eden Park's new proposed look. Is it a goer? We'll see what Brian Finn has to say just after 9.30. Uh, we'll look at, um, apparently Rigger the other day had a crack at his five top cricketing grounds. Um, so um, I have a crack at mine as well. Um, Riggers are quite a lot different, or are they? No, maybe not. Uh, the last three are, no doubt about that. Yeah, so uh, we'll give you a, a pacing for purpose horse as well. Um, and that'll be at Alexandra Park. We'll let you know what that is uh, just after 10.30. We'll also talk to Sam Ackerman uh, about the uh, Magic Round, the Rugby League Round, which is in Brisbane. Fantastic weekend of Rugby League. God, if you're a fan, you'd just want to be there, wouldn't you? You'd pitch a tent in the car park outside to Suncorp, and you wouldn't move. Uh, David Bileski just after 11 o'clock. Uh, of course, David is our uh, favourite golf analyst. Big tournament coming up this weekend. Uh, who does he pick? It's the Wells Fargo Championship. And then, of course, um, we've got the PGA Championship not too far away either. You might want to look at a perhaps a futures bet around that. Uh, we'll play Stumped at around uh, 11.30 this morning because we're back to uh, 50 bucks. Uh, and then we want your text as well on a number of issues. Double eight, double three is the temper bedpost text machine line. Sport is our religion. And here is Smithy's Sermon. So if you had to design a poster for the face of New Zealand rugby today, who would be that face? I'm prompted to this poser by something Jamie Wall said the other day on the panel. He said he felt Ruby Tui was pretty much at the moment the face of New Zealand rugby. Got me thinking and I hope it does you as well. That face, for me anyway, should embody the very essence of the black jersey, shouldn't it? The commitment, the courage, the pride, the history, the standards, the very performance that it has made it the desirable icon over all time to play for and to watch. Does Adi Savia tick all the boxes? Commitment, yes. Courage, oh yes. Pride, history, standards, performance, oh yes. Adi has it all. Sam Whitelock also fits the bill. Longevity, availability. If he isn't the face and uh, not sure he shouldn't be, he certainly epitomises the engine room. Is it Sam Kane, the likely all-black captain? 
in World Cup year. Could it be a more appropriate? Follow me, lads. Follow me, country. I'm sensing some detractors out there. Okay, then. Let's look at the world champion ladies, the Black Ferns. In my word, what a story and a compelling case of success. Is it Sarah Hirini, whose leadership on and off the field is consistently a champion across two forms of the game? And the sevens is extremely important. Let's not forget that. You could put a serious case for Ruahe de Mont, captain, current captain of the New, uh, New Zealand uh, Black Ferns, current New Zealand Rugby Player of the Year, Tom French, Maori Player of the Year, Black Ferns Player of the Year, and World, yes, World 15s Player of the Year in the women's game. Could it be Ruby Tui then, a fine player with an excellent record across sevens and fifteens, seemingly self-appointed advocate for the women's game who will always, it seems, stand her ground against whoever and whatever for the cause. I mean, she certainly gets the headlines and that's recognisable and undeniable. Or indeed, does New Zealand rugby have a face? Should the poster just depict the jersey and the jersey alone? It's that symbolic of the times that we have at the moment with rugby. Maybe, and oh my God, give me an uppercut. Please take me outside and thrash me because I've left Razor off the list. I left Razor off the list. Oh my God, so many candidates. Or none at all. What's your call? What a sound off the back of Cole McConkie. That has gone many a mile. And that brings up 50 for him on debut. New Zealand require 28. Hangs it down the ground. They should only get one. And that should be the end. Matt Henry had to come back for two. There was no mileage whatsoever in Henry being on strike. Comprehensive win by 26 runs means it's the first time that Pakistan have won an ODI series against New Zealand since 2011. Rightio, uh, that was uh, the closing action. Uh, I think Mark Butcher calling it there, a former England player. And uh, that was the end result for New Zealand. 3-0 down in the series um, against Pakistan in Karachi. Grant Elliott uh, is uh, over there, of course, a former black cap hero from Eden Park and a uh, friend and uh, one of our brothers here at uh, SCNZ, uh, his morning show um, in the weekends with Daniel McCarty, of course. Um, so the Black Caps tour of Pakistan, yes, the third one-day international. So uh, what are we finding out? And uh, we asked Grant uh, some questions, uh, particularly uh, about the conditions uh, last night. What was the pitch like at Karachi and was it offering more for the batters or the bowlers? Talking about a par score being 290, so maybe a little bit under par. They started well, they bowled well on a pitch, which looked like it was going to have a little bit of wear and tear. But Tom Latham won the toss and he decided that he'd have a little bit of a bowl because the dew can become a little bit of a factor later on at night. Unfortunately, there was wind around and dew wasn't a factor, but I think Baba probably would have had a bowl as well. So there wasn't much carry. It was one of those wickets where you had to bowl full and straight and bring the stumps into play. Mid-wicket and um, extra cover were always in the game. Uh, Fielding was going to be a factor. New Zealand fielded outstandingly well, but unfortunately, I'd have to say that Pakistan probably outshone us in the fielding department. I thought they fielded a little bit better than us. 
That's uh, concerning because that's the one thing. We've always been uh, the top of the ladder uh, with our outfielding. There's no doubt about that. Barbara, of course, is uh, Barbara's arm. Pakistan's top order, of uh, which he is very much a part of, once again uh, caused headaches for the Black Caps. What makes that combination so good? Yeah, it was trouble again in the, the top order. Fakhir Zaman, um, Imam Al-Haq and Barbara Azam posting most of the runs. Uh, Imam Al-Haq being uh, the chief destroyer, scoring 90, and Barbara Azam uh, getting over 50 again before they both inside edged onto the sticks. The amazing thing about these three Pakistan players is I didn't realize, but all three of them are in the top five ODI rankings in the world in terms of batters. So um, Imam Al-Haq and Fakhir Zaman just almost go under the radar. You never really hear about them because of the likes of Barbara Azam. And I guess that, you know, when you're in a team with Virat Kohli, you don't necessarily hear about anyone else in the team but Virat and maybe Rohit Sharma. So, yeah, they, they've gone under the radar and Fakhir Zaman was averaging 297 before this game. So um, he's been uh, unbelievable and in their conditions, as you know, they are unstoppable. I think that our fielding was, as I said before, quite outstanding. So maybe that 287 was probably a 300. Uh, where we restricted them, but I definitely, I was feeling confident that we'd be able to chase it down if someone got stuck in and got 100. Rightio then, uh, how did you rate uh, New Zealand's bowling attack, of course, and in the end, uh, the run chase, Grant? Yeah, the pick of my, my bowlers, I think Cole McConkie and East Saudi really did impress me uh, throughout the middle. Cole McConkie on debut, he bowled impressively, one for 46, multifaceted cricketer, you know, he bats well, he bowls well, fields well, he's a leader for Canterbury. Uh, very pleasing to see him do well on debut, but unfortunately, 63 with the blade and one for 46, he wasn't on the winning team. We needed someone to score a big hundred. Um, we restricted them well. Our bowlers have been, I think, I think they've done the job in Pakistan. I think they've, they've bowled well. I think it's always been the run chase. It's always been our batters where we've just been slightly let down. I think Daryl Mitchell obviously has kept the innings together, but we just haven't quite had enough. We haven't had that performance where you need someone to get a big hundred, you know, go on and get that 150 or like Fakhir Zaman did the other day, that 180 not out. So our run chase, well, it fizzled. It started off well. Uh, Will Young and Tom Blundell, but you know the runouts and Pakistan's fielding, which I don't think you ever say Pakistan's fielding would be the reason for um, the demise of our innings. But the two runouts at the top with Blundell and Young really did hurt us, and um, it was up to Latham and, and Mitchell. Mitchell um, was was out cheaply. Uh, Latham sort of toiled away as he does. He, he tried to keep the innings together, but eventually um, got knocked over and. This Pakistan team is difficult at the death. I think the opportunity lies in overs 20 to 40, where you have to try and dominate the, um, the power play rules with only four players out. We need to try and find a way there to get on top of these spinners. So Pakistan now uh, 3-0 up in the series. It's done and dusted, uh, all sealed up. Um, do they have anything more to play for? There was an opportunity for New Zealand going into this third ODI that if, we won the series, we went to the number one team in the world in ODIs. So we can't win the series, so that can't happen. But Pakistan, if they win 5-0, well, they go to number one in the world. So 
Um, everything to play for for Pakistan. And obviously, they've just had Mickey Arthur, who's been announced as director of cricket, and he's uh, he's a remote coach. So I don't actually know what that is, but he's he's coaching remotely. He said that he thinks that this team, and he's probably in his job to say it, but he thinks it's the most talented team, and that they can go to number one. Okay, so what about us then? Um, what do you hope to see, Grant, uh, from them in the remaining two one-day internationals on this tour? So when you're talking about a team who can go to number one in the world, it's a very talented group of, of, of players that they've got, and I think especially in the, the bowling department, I think that they restrict you so much that their batters who are just that solid top three they can try and chase these runs down or post a total that's even competitive for their bowlers to bowl at. So it relies heavily on their bowlers. But what I'd like to see is, uh, I guess, just putting up another fighter. We never give up. We were, you know, 20 odd runs short today and we've always been there and thereabouts. There's been opportunities that we've, we've missed and I just think we haven't played the complete game and we have to play a complete game against this Pakistan team. Um, I don't, I don't quite know whether, you know, it's a bit of a hangover for having so many players out and this group of players don't believe or they don't quite have enough senior players in this team. I look at the number of games played and, you know, Tom Latham's the only one who's played over 100 games and the next best is Henry Nichols who's played 70 odd. So there's a lot of inexperience in this team, but the exciting thing is is that these players will go on they'll get the experience and we'll create more depth for New Zealand cricket so more performances like Cole McConkey and see some more solid performances from the senior players and I think we're away okay uh, thoughts there from uh, Grant Elliott uh, man on the ground over there in Pakistan and Karachi we'll take a short break when we come back we'll hear from uh, one of the new players into the side last night Tom Blundell. Are experts in agriculture, covering your equipment, parts and service needs to help you succeed in your field. Summer or winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Yes, so we fell short by uh, 26 runs last night. Pakistan winning, uh, scoring 287 for six. Uh, we're 261. Tom Blundell into the side to uh, open the batting in this uh, match in place of Chad Bowes uh, succeeded too, 65 from 78 before being uh, run out uh, after the match. Uh, Tom Blundell had this to say. Hey Tom, this is Bairam Kazi from Grassroots Cricket. First of all, commiserations on the series loss, but congratulations on your knock. Personally, you did really well. New Zealand were going really well in and around the 30 over mark, and then the chase was sort of derailed uh, thanks to Salman Ali Aga and Naseem Shah. So what particular moment do you think uh, was the turning point in this game, and where do you think New Zealand went wrong. Yeah, I think you look at it. We our partnerships today we, we weren't. Um, we didn't have those one or two big partnerships. Um, we sort of lost wickets in clumps, and that's always going to be hard against a very good attack like Pakistan. Um, you know, obviously, if you look at it, we came quite close. Um, we just lost too many wickets um, throughout, and it's always going to be hard to, I guess, build partnerships when when you've got a pretty good seam attack and, and spin attack. I don't. Uh, the question is that. Uh, how did you see the wicket behavior and do you think that uh, the target was achievable for you guys and how you see the Pakistani guys they drop a lot of catches so you survive thank you um, yeah I think certainly the target was uh, we thought was definitely chaseable um, 
yeah, it was. I think all we need to do is have one or two big partnerships along the way, and uh, I thought they actually fielded really well, apart from you know a couple of drop catches. But um, you know, you know, like I said before, you know they're a class team, and they got some very good players, and you know to get you know reasonably close, um, you know there's, we can take a lot of positives out of this game and in, in the series, and you know like I said before, Cole McConkey, the way he finished the innings and was um, on debut was was pretty cool to see. Yeah, it's uh, quite a lot of uh, black cap speaking there, isn't there? Uh, like I said before, and um, you know, I thought we were pretty good, and um, you know, so um, we can take positives out of it. Uh, yeah, probably can, uh, but uh, I think the positive is that we did compete, but uh, that side will look nothing like uh, the side that we take to the, the World Cup in uh, India, or will it? That's a very interesting thing. Two more chances for players to cement a place, perhaps. Not too much more cricket before uh, they have to start thinking about finalising. That squad. So 3-0 down in the series. Um, next one coming up very shortly. Uh, we shall take a break very shortly. Also, um, why would you let your face, uh, face play overseas? This is about the face of New Zealand rugby. Uh, Ruby needs to be here to keep growing the women's game. I think it's a fair point. Uh, but she is, uh, of course, taking a sabbatical, playing sevens in the United States. Uh, Peter's come in on a cricketing matter, and Pete says, not much point in us developing spinners in Pakistan. Well, we th- then they'll be chucked on the scrap heap when they came home. Be better playing four seamers and get them to concentrate on their line and length. Pete, I think it's a fair point. Uh, absolutely fair point. Is anything ever going to change in that direction? Uh, we'd love to hear from you too on the, the face of New Zealand rugby. Who is your face of New Zealand rugby? If you had to design a poster, if you had to put a face inside the jersey or on that poster... Who is your face of New Zealand rugby? Love to hear from you. Double eight, double three, double eight, double three. Brand are experts in agriculture, covering your equipment, parts and service needs to help you succeed in your field. Summer or winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Right, uh, coming up to uh, 9.30, just uh, a quick look at uh, the text line. The face of New Zealand rugby would be uh, an easy, uh, would be easy. The bearded Sam Whitelock, the man that'll go down as our top all, four All Blacks of all time. That's Patrick from Ashburton. Um, another person comes in and says, uh, no player stands out at present. We don't have a Richie or a Dan. So the most talked about is Razor. Interesting. Right, uh, Mikey says, morning, Smithy. We bemoan the fact of crowd sizes in little old New Zealand for rugby, but tell me, what's the population of Pakistan? Hardly anyone there for the one-day cricket. Also for me, Sam Whitelock epitomises the black jersey for me. Hard, skilled, respected, and you'd need a tow truck to drag him off the field. Um, yep, uh, there's, so there's what's it, uh, two uh, for Sam Whitelock. Um, one for Ruby Tui, but uh, don't let her go overseas. Um, one for Razor as well. Um, so uh, we'll get uh, back to that. Keep them coming in. Double eight, double three, double eight, double three. The face of New Zealand rugby for you if you were designing a post. The nine thirty one. Here's fourteen seventy six a.m. in Auckland. This is SENZ. It's Kiwi for sport. Right, our next guest is uh, Mr Brian Finn who wrote a very interesting piece for The Bounce this week about Eden Park and what happens next. Does the retrofitting of the stadium make sense or is a new build a better option? Uh, Brian has a long history working in rugby 
uh, formerly New Zealand Rugby Comms, a media chief, um, a sort of media liaison officer for the All Blacks for a number of years, played an important role in New Zealand securing the 2011 Rugby World Cup. These days, uh, he is an advisor in the sport, entertainment and stadium infrastructure sectors. Good morning to you, Brian. Nice to speak to you again. Yeah, you too. Good morning, Smithy. Right, uh, Brian, let's get into the subject because it is one that gets a lot of people a little bit riled up, to be fair, particularly Aucklanders. Um, when you think back to uh, 2011 Rugby World Cup final and that, that tournament in general with the big crowds there, uh, how do you think uh, Eden Park has uh, made its transition in the next uh, 12 years? Oh, look, I, I'd have to say, you know, as you and I both know, Smithy, there's been some great sporting moments at Eden Park. So I, as much as I, I have been critical of uh, where some of the initiatives are pointing in some of the structures around Eden Park, and we can get into that if you like, um, th- there's been these great moments. And, and that upgrade for... Um, the Rugby World Cup in 2011 significantly enhanced Eden Park. It was probably the biggest leap forward they've had. Uh, I was involved, obviously, through rugby in that, but I was also involved earlier in the 90s when the ASB stand was built and lights were added to Eden Park. Um, so there's been a sort of a couple of changes, but I, I, part of that's also the, the criticism of Eden Park is it's always been done in bits and pieces. Um, so it's never been a complete stadium. I can understand their appetite to try and, appetite to try and fix that. But I, I fundamentally, I actually think we need to be looking in a different place for all of our venues in Auckland. When you um, wrote the article, um, uh, very interesting, I, I might add as well, um, what were the key areas that Let's Eden Park down for you and even with a rebuild would continue to do so? Yeah, good questions, really. Look, I think the location has always been an issue. Uh, it's uh, It's in a leafy suburb and that's not necessarily impossible to solve, but from a transport and access point of view, that's always going to be challenging um, and not much is going to change that. Uh, and it's also got uh, other limitations as as they call it a hybrid stadium, but it's a, it's a mixed use where you've got cricket and rugby oval and, and football rectangular codes trying to operate in the same venue. And that doesn't happen nearly anywhere in the world now. There was a thing in New Zealand where all of our venues were like that at one stage, but now Auckland's the outlier. Uh, where it's got this hybrid approach, whereas the rest of the country, if you think of, you know, FMG Stadium and uh, Forsyth Bar football stadiums with really good sight lines for rugby, rugby league and, and and football codes, and then an oval somewhere nearby for, for cricket codes. And I think that's the way Auckland should be aiming. Um, but we've just never been able to crack that nut. See, we get a lot of um, uh, texts and, and messages into the station and most of the people that talk about uh, Eden Park talk about um, uh, the experience and uh, when they actually get inside the stadium they don't find it what, what you, that, that appealing, what, you know, the food is too dear, um, the seating is uncomfortable, you know, getting in and getting out and all those sorts of things, uh, Brian. Yeah. Would, we, would Eden Park ever be able to fix that? Well, um, that's probably a question for them. In reality, it's the bane of every you know stadium operator's uh, existence. But if you, a lot of Kiwis, are, particularly sports fans, are well travelled, and we've seen how really good stadiums work that are designed with the fan in mind, they're designed designed to meet the needs of the hires, the different uh, sporting codes and entertainment hires that use those venues. And I think that's what we're we're lacking, uh, particularly in Auckland, that we don't have that approach that's fan first. Uh, but also considers the current and future needs 
of, of the sporting codes that are changing. We've just seen in the last decade the rapid transformation you know, of women's sport and how that's made a change to the facilities that are needed in venues and the types of events and uh, crowds that attend those events. So how do you get ahead of that and think, what, what are the future needs? You know, even looking down the track, uh, just thinking, uh, listening to you this morning around cricket, well, what if a big bash league team, you know, wanted to come into New Zealand or be established in New Zealand or another A-league franchise for Auckland or AFL, which has definitely got its sights on New Zealand? You know, how would we cater for those um, high-profile entertainment franchises and opportunities and I'm not sure we do. I'm, I'm not sure we really cater for the codes we've got now and the events we've got now. So, you know, how are we going to cope with that changing landscape in the future? And one that is, as you say, you know, fan-centric, that really thinks about how fans want to get around, how they want to um, access a venue, get access to food and beverage and merchandise and sight lines to the, to the ground. All of those things need to be taken into consideration. Brian... Obviously, uh, the big question and the one that Aucklanders are very, very interested in, who the hell's going to pay for this and how, who's going to put a figure on it? I mean, how, how can you put a figure on it when you look at the Christchurch blowout after, um, what, yep. a year or so of inactivity about the whole deal? Yeah, oh, look, it, the, there are big numbers. Um, they're eye-watering when you think about them. Um, the thing that people have got to remember, and it's often lost even on, on our politicians, is that we will spend hundreds of millions of dollars on sporting events in this country just to keep the ones we've got going. Um, sporting venues, rather. You know, the maintenance of keeping these facilities going, and particularly the ageing facilities, their maintenance costs keep going up. So we're going to have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars anyway. So is it a smarter play to invest in a new venue that's going to be fit for purpose, it's going to last for a long time, and it's going to be in the right place and fix all of those issues we've got with our current venues, particularly in Auckland, you know, I'm talking about. Uh, would that be a smarter investment than just continuing to pour money into the venues we've got? And, and look, I, I mentioned in an earlier article, uh, Dylan uh, Cleaver at The Bounce has been kind enough to, to entertain my rants uh, in my articles, but I, I mentioned in an earlier one sort of the, how we got to this situation, particularly Auckland with its various cities were all competing with each other, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And so every, every city had its own stadium and it had its own theatre and all of these sorts of public facilities. They're all in the now the super city um, world we live in. They're all in the wrong place. They're all not configured really for what we need. So uh, some of the work I've done in, in the past few years was trying to wrestle with that and come up with a plan for the future that resolved all of those historical issues and came up with a, a, a future plan where the city could migrate to new venues or upgraded venues that would be um, more fan friendly and would also support the needs of the hires. Right, let's uh, look at who's going to go um, to the stadium because you and I both know and I think uh, the sporting world knows it's very hard to get people to go to events these days. Uh, you, you spend this money, you, up, you put a, a roof on top, you, you get everything up and running. Is there a guarantee that when the novelty wears off this is just not going to be a massive white elephant? <laughs> well, first of all, I've got to say, I'm not in favour of, of the Eden Park upgrade, and it probably came through that in clear my article, but mm. also um, not, not a fan of making a bigger venue. I'm not sure we need a bigger venue. You know, 50,000 seats at Eden Park, are, 30,000 of those seats are really used. You know, they're, they're used on occasion uh, for all-black test matches, occasionally for a very big cricket match, but really the, the last time we've seen it absolutely full uh, might have been the Indian Tours or before that Cricket World Cup, um, and then the odd concert. So 
you know, do, do we need a 60,000-seat stadium? Probably not. Do we need a, a stadium that can be configured for smaller events? And you think of the crowds at the Warriors, uh, who are having a great season, um, and the Blues generally attract. It's much smaller. They'd be, they're lost in a venue like Eaton Park. Um, and then you go down to provincial rugby, for example, and that, now we're really talking about a need for sort of more boutique facilities. So how do you cater for that range of audiences? Uh, and, and I think a, a 60,000, permanently fixed 60,000-seat stadium doesn't solve that problem. In fact, it makes it worse. That's a very good point, actually. I'm just trying to cast my memory back to some of our great stadiums in the years gone by, and I know times change. But why does it have to be fully seated? Why is, why, why is there not a possibility? Why is there not a possibility for people to stand for a, an 80-minute fixture? Why is, I mean, to, to walk around. Um, I just wonder about that. Well, good. That's an interesting point. But I think we, we ended up with seats out of sort of health and safety uh, reasons, particularly more about the impacts of, on venues where things went wrong overseas rather than here. But I think that went around the world that there was a trend towards all seated stadiums. But if you look at the cricket, you know, your world, Smithy, in the, in the cricket ground, the great cricket grounds we've got around the country now at Hagley Oval and um, at the Basin, uh, at University Oval and Eden, people can sit on the banks and enjoy it. And it creates part of that atmosphere. And I think that's what we're missing in Auckland, a genuine oval, but one that's got that, um, you know, village green atmosphere, which seems to be really working. Even the um, the English media, when they came here uh, for the most recent English tour, uh, they all commented on this, the, outside of Auckland, this great collection of venues we've got around the country that is really fan-friendly, family-friendly, and is great atmosphere for test cricket in particular, but also for limited overs cricket. And, you know, one of the models we looked at was the was the conversion of Western Springs, which is a, it's a natural oval. It's got the embankment there already. Um, so you could absolutely create that, but you could also scale it up for, you know, bigger um, uh, white ball T20 and, and ODI matches. So it had that sort of functionality. And I think that's where we should be looking, is where could we create an oval? Where could we create a rectangular stadium? And I think that would lend itself to being downtown somewhere. Um, and then what do we do with the existing venues in terms of transitioning them to other uses over time? One of the things, Brian, that often triggers action around these things is a uh, the securing of an event as such. And people say, well, we have to do it now because we've got this coming to town, yep. i.e. Commonwealth Games. They're talking about the Commonwealth Games in 2034. Uh, I mean, I'm not quite sure how Christchurch is going to fit into that, but if Auckland wanted to host that, they couldn't do it at the moment, could they, with what they've got? Yeah, well, that Commonwealth Games is always a tricky one. And... Um, because uh, there are specific needs. Interestingly, the New Zealand Olympic Committee and, and the government are looking at this as a national event where they'll spread the events and the venues around the country. So that's that's a new approach that the Commonwealth Games Federation is now willing to, to entertain. Um, so that sort of changes the landscape and it doesn't all have to be in Auckland or, or you know, or, or in Christchurch. I, for me personally, uh, having worked on and attended a few Olympic and Commonwealth Games, I kind of think having those events in one city does create some of the magic of hosting those events. So I personally, I wonder if that would work as well as having it all in one place. But you're absolutely right. You know, one of the anomalies of a, of a Commonwealth Games, and we saw this with Mount Smart Stadium, is when you put a running track into a venue, it really changes the nature of that venue. Um, so one of the options uh, that was talked about in Auckland a few years ago when Commonwealth Games was sort of being murmured about was 
you could have an athletics track at Western Springs. So you don't necessarily have athletics in the main stadium, as it were. You have mm. it in a, in a venue that can be scaled up and down for the event and then you know, repurposed afterwards because it, it does really... It does really affect um, those venues when that for their use afterwards, and we've seen that even with the London 2012, you know, venue trying to repurpose that afterwards has had had been challenging. The roof, I mean, we've seen a, a version of it work pretty well um, in one of our less populated major cities, uh, of course, in Dunedin Forsyth Bar Stadium, um, and they seem to have solved the turf issue because that quite often has been the case. You put a roof over something, the turf does not uh, knit as it used to do. So, right, uh, let's look at the roof. Is that absolutely necessary on your ideal stadium? I think after the summer we've had in Auckland, Smithy, uh, and probably you in Hawke's Bay, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's, um, mm. you'd, you'd have to argue, you know, weather is, is now a major factor thanks to climate change, but also uh, fan ex- fan expectations have changed. You know, they they don't want to sit in a in a cold, wet place. You know, when they can sit at home with a fifty five inch flat screen TV and enjoy an event from afar, what's the attraction of coming out on a cold night or a, or, or a windy afternoon? So that idea of having a venue with a roof um, would be a game changer. And I think in, in Auckland's case, it is needed. Uh, we've seen it not only for sporting events um, and cricket obviously lost a lot of action this past summer all around the country but we've also seen it in the case of concerts that have been either affected or cancelled or changed because of weather so that idea of having a a covered venue a a large covered venue in Auckland I think makes a lot of sense it's it's certainly expensive there's no doubt around that as soon as you put a roof on these venues it adds you know hundreds of millions of dollars to the cost um, and particularly if it's a retractable one that's even more expensive but I think when you're looking for the long term and you're looking for the functionality of that stadium that can run events all the time and generate income that offsets that, that cost of investment I think it's, a, it's well worth pursuing Right, okay, uh, you were a well-travelled man uh, you know the, <laughs> uh, the, you know the, the, the demographics of uh, Auckland Sport Watchers you know uh, the size of uh, crowds that can be attracted for serious events um, have you got a stadium in mind that you've seen for, say, a population of two, two to three million people? Um, bearing yep. in mind, people will come from overseas. People will come from uh, with other parts of New Zealand to Auckland for the stadium. Uh, what stadium that you've been to sort of fits the bill for us? Well, I haven't been there, but it's one that we looked at in some of the work I did a few years ago, and that's BC Place in Vancouver. And and the reason. That's a good example is because it has multiple modes where they can actually have like what they call club mode for smaller events where the upper part of the stadium is tiered off. So you would have, fans in New Zealand would have seen it with the uh, New Zealand Sevens team playing there. And so for smaller crowds, they've got that upper tier cloaked off. So it doesn't feel like you're in a big stadium. You're, a, you're in a small boutique stadium. But then for the major events, they open those, those decks up and suddenly they've got a, a full-size major event stadium. So that kind of mo- model, I think, is a really good one for us to look at. But if you look at what's happening in Australia, you know, they're now investing in these local football grounds again, you know, local, particularly for rugby league, if you look at Parramatta. You know, that is a, a great stadium, albeit not a covered stadium, but it's, it's a mid-sized stadium that's been done at a, a, a very good price point. We might need a few features for something that was going to cater for all of our football codes, but they're really good. And then the upgrade of the Sydney Football Stadium, which, albeit, was challenging at times, but they've got there. You know, again, that's a, a future-proof venue. So looking at you know what they've done, particularly in Australia, you know, they're renewing their stadiums. This, this week, they're talking about a new stadium in Hobart for a, 
a new AFL franchise, the federal government's going to put $240 million into that. Now, that's a significant investment. And they're looking at these for their long-term options. And, and again, it comes back to we were a little bit uh, undercooked in New Zealand when it comes to doing these big infrastructure projects. And we shy away from them and we tend to do things sort of on the cheap where we can. Um, uh, this is an argument. It's a, it's a bit like the old Auckland Harbour Bridge argument. It's, it's time to invest and invest for the long term. And the payback will be over the long term. And yes, there's, there's some big numbers up front. Um, but it's that kind of planned investment. We know we know what we're going to get. Uh, we know how much it's going to cost, and we know how we're going to pay it back. But having that exercise, I think, is well worth doing. And, I, and I, as I pointed out in the article, you know, we'd, let's not kid ourselves. A retrofit of Eden Park is no cheaper than building a new stadium. It really isn't, just because of the complexity of that project. So that's a billion dollars plus. And there are other billion groups dollars. proposing stadiums. Yeah. Yep, easy, easy. So yeah, you know, I think that. That idea that we can do this cheaply by doing it in an existing venue really doesn't work. And see, for me, Brian, right at this very point in time, um, you know, you look at interest rates, you look at people doing it tough, uh, people recovering from uh, floods, etc., like that. And I just wonder about the timing, the timing of this. If you put yep. this to the public at the moment, how do you think it would go down? That kind of spend. Yeah, absolutely fair call, um, Smithy. I think um, I think the the need we've got at the moment is to plan for it. It's not to build a new stadium right now. It's to come up with a plan that everybody agrees with. All of the all of the sporting codes, all of the entertainment users, Aucklanders having a say in that. Coming up with a plan and planning that over a decade. So it's not about finding a billion dollar check right now, but it's planning a transition to a new future. And at the same time, maximising the venues we've got now and making those work as well as they can. And one of the things, you know, I reference in the article that's an anomaly in Auckland that doesn't exist nearly anywhere else in Australasia is Eden Park is a privately owned stadium. It's it's controlled by a trust and the, and the primary beneficiaries of that trust are, are two regional sports organisations, Auckland Cricket and Auckland Rugby. And good on them. That, mm. that was through their forebears that that venue exists. But at some point, we need to really look at that and say, is that the best model? We, do we need a public model that controls all of the stadia in Auckland that's owned by the public? So that is investments that go in there. We know that that's all going towards the public good and to everybody's benefit, including all the sporting codes, you know, because the, the benefits that accrue to Auckland rugby don't necessarily, they don't accrue to the Blues, they don't accrue to New Zealand rugby, they don't accrue to New Zealand cricket. They exclusively accrue to Auckland rugby and Auckland cricket. And that's just through, you know, dens of history that they've ended up as the, if you like, the benefactors. Uh, for me, the argument would be to say, how do we incentivise Auckland cricket and Auckland rugby? So, OK, here's, here's um, your incentive, here's your payment to look after yourselves and your stakeholders for the future. And let's put mm. all the venues under one roof. And then let's have an investment plan to modernise, relocate, um, build new venues over time. But oh, you're absolutely right. It's a big ask at the moment. But the moment we don't even have a plan to think about, you know, where we go in the future. Brian Finn, um, I think with um, with that, the last uh, bit you were talking about there, all the money that could go back to Auckland Cricket and Auckland Rugby, you've possibly opened another can of worms for another time. But uh, really <laughs> intriguing, <laughs> really, really intriguing to, to listen to your viewpoint. I've uh, enjoyed uh, reading your articles and, and uh, a hell of a lot of common sense in there. And at some stage... It's got to happen, but when, where, and how much, I guess, are still going to be um, uh, the three main uh, talking points. Uh, great to catch up with you, Brian. Uh, fantastic to hear Likewise. your points of view, and uh, have a terrific day. Thank you. Thanks. Cheers. Uh, Brian Finn there with his uh, thoughts there. Much uh, travel man, very experienced man, and 
um, I think echoing the thoughts of uh, a lot of us, really, to be fair. Um, perhaps should have happened a decade ago, we wouldn't even be talking about this. Um, but it didn't. And uh, they put a, not a full stop on it, they just put a, what, a comma on it. And now it's come around to haunt uh, people again. Or has it? 9.53 here on SENZ. Brand are experts in agriculture, covering your equipment, parts and service needs to help you succeed in your field. Summer or winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. You got to know when the hold Know when the fold Smithy's multi. Know when to walk away and know when to run. Bet live on your favourite sports. Download the TAB app today. Well, yesterday Breast beat Nantes. Oh, in fact, this morning they Breast beat Nantes and uh, Juventus beat Lecce, so uh, we're on track. But yesterday, unfortunately, the Golden State Warriors couldn't get it done at home against the Lakers. Lakers look very good. Golden State, not so good. I thought Steph Curry was pretty quiet. Um, and Clay Thompson was um, just the ordinary when it came to uh, his three-pointers, his swish shots. Um, and Draymond Green was an idiot, so there's no doubt about that. Uh, let's uh, go today. Uh, the Blue Jays to beat the Red Sox, Major League Baseball. Blue Jays to beat the Red Sox, $1.64. Tomorrow morning, Brighton and Manchester United to draw at $3.60. EPL match. Brighton are actually quite warm favourites there. Um, and in terms of cricket overnight, uh, Somerset to beat Northants at $1.60 in English County Cricket in the con- uh, one-day competition there. Somerset to beat Northants that's at $1.60. So that multi's up to $9.44. Uh, we'll look at favourite cricket grounds after the break um, and uh, a number of other issues in the next hour, including uh, a chat with Louis Herman Watt as well. And uh, that'll take us through to 11. Here's Aroha with the news. experts in agriculture covering your equipment parts and service needs to help you succeed in your field from behind the stumps to behind the mic nothing gets past smithy this is mornings with ian smith on senz radio it's uh, 10 3 here on senz in the mornings uh, courtesy of uh, brent your john deere equipment suppliers uh, favourite cricket downs uh, came up uh, Mark Richardson did uh, a couple of stints with uh, Kirsty um, and uh, <coughs> on the run home and they talked about uh, favourite uh, sports grounds, favourite cricket grounds for him so uh, Logan thought it uh, would be a good idea to, to compare his thoughts uh, to my thoughts uh, so we'll do that now um, mine's quite uh, an easy one um, and uh, it's Lords Lords, the home of cricket, why not? Seven weeks of cricket, 48 games, one ball, here's Bolt. They're going to push. Are we in for a super over? They've got to go quick, they've got to go quick. Out, I'm sure he's out. We're going to a super over. Brian, cut the audio, cut the audio. We don't need to know what happens after that. Okay? Thank you. Lords, great pick, Smithy. Just, right, the ground, it's, uh, it's feel, it's history, um, it's idiosyncrasies. Uh, like the slope, etc. Uh, just the fact that you're there, whatever, it's no bad seat there. Um, they let you take your own wine in. I mean, it's just you sit on the nursery ground and have a picnic out the back for lunch, brass bands. Uh, it's just the most amazing place. 
to experience a day of cricket, particularly when it is packed out, which it will be for the Ashes uh, a little later on this year. So uh, what did Mark Richardson think about his number one ground? Time now to whip around your top five cricket grounds around the world oh, since oh, the Black yeah. Caps are currently in Pakistan. Is that on the list? No, there are none in Pakistan, oh, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> oh, you got to start with Lords, don't you? It is the home of cricket. Uh, it is something about it. It's such a cricket experience, and it has an electric buzz to it on the first morning of a test. It's always packed. You get 35, 40,000 people. I think it's, it's about 40, 30 to 40, and you'll get them in there for a test. What about some of the little nuances that we don't know about, the traditions oh, at well, Lords? You come down this amazing staircase. You make your way down to the ground, and then you go through the long room, and the long room will be four deep either side with the patrons, with, with the, the members, and you only get enough room to really get through, and they just applaud you the whole way. It'd be the worst place to go out and get a dark, first of all, dark and have to wander through, because then I don't think you get the same applause. They probably yeah, turn their like back on you. like royalty there. Yeah, it, it's just fantastic. You, you sit there at lunch, in the lunch, there's bottles of wine and things like that on the <laughs> table, because I think in the old days they probably did at lunch. Did it's, anyone used to touch it? The slope is quirky as well. You don't really, no, no, I was tempted though. <laughs> the, um, it's just, you know, you stare, you're at so, so tempted to have a, have a red wine at lunch there. Um, and the slope is, is quirky as well. It's a lot of slope. People don't really realise just how sloped the ground is. It's just a magnificent place. Smithy, do you think every international uh, cricketer would pick Lords as their number one? Not a lot of Aussies would. Uh, they'd, they'd go for um, probably my next pick or uh, uh, another ground uh, around Australia. I, I, but I, I think you just have to a lot of it would be in the majority. Put it that way. I think <clears throat> Indians might have uh, their own particular grounds. Pakistanis might have uh, like Gaddafi Stadium in Lahore or the Karachi National Stadium where they played last night. But um, in, in all honesty, if you've been to Lords and experienced uh, what cricket is supposed to be uh, and seen the history around the joint, and uh, Kirsty used a, a very good word there in nuances, um, then um, I think uh, you'd leave there pretty convinced that it's uh, got to be right up there. Simple as that. Right, uh, number two for me. Uh, is a cricket ground with so much bad things, so, so many bad things, so much bad stuff has happened to New Zealand over the years, but it still is regarded as uh, the mecca of uh, particularly Melbourne sport, but Australian sport. It is absolutely massive, and I was lucky enough this year, um, was it this year? No, late last year, to do a T20 international between India and Pakistan. Now, uh, it was a neutral venue, quite clearly. It was Chocker. Nearly 100,000 people there, about 94,000 people. Uh, you couldn't see a seat. You couldn't see a spare seat. And that atmosphere was the greatest I think I've ever had at any sport that I've ever been to. Absolutely fanatical. Uh, and that's the MCG. The MCG. But there's been some really special uh, New Zealand sporting m uh, moments there, and, and in particular cricketing moments. And here's one of them. Works it away on the leg side. A wonderful hundred from Tom Blundell. And innings of grit, resistance and style. The first Kiwi to score a Test 100 at the MCG. Well played. Mark Howard commentating with Ian Smith. I don't know if I could name him more. Uh, I'm going to say iconic comment commentating duo, Smithy. <laughs> Howie, the Howie games. Um, no, he's actually, I think, doing some IPL at the moment, Howie. A lot of fun to commentate with and uh, finds a word for the right occasion. So, yeah, that was, that was special. Absolutely special, uh, the MCG. 
Uh, what about for rigor, though? Uh, you can't beat the MCG. It's a coliseum. It is something else when you've been there. Uh, played a one-day international there, 65,000 people. The noise, it looked half empty, yet the noise was deafening. You couldn't even, mid-off, you, you couldn't even yell and be heard. So everything's eye contact with the captain and, and with the people around you. But it is an, it's an incredible place. We won that one-day international there as well. We got close, and the atmosphere was just, yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget it. The Coliseum, it's a great way of describing that stadium. 100,000 it sits or more, more than 100,000? Um, yeah, it's about 100, 105, isn't it, they'll get in there for at maximum huge. capacity for the, for the AFL final. And they're on top of you. Yeah, and Warney always parked his Lamborghini or Ferrari or whatever it was <laughs> right outside your changing room. <laughs> and, and, of course, now you have the Shane Warne stand there at the MCG. It's just... I mean, so many, so many great moments, so many great memories there at MCG Smithy. As the uh, Kirsty and Rigger did mention as well, uh, along with cricket, it is such a spectacular ground for the AFL Grand Final year in, year out, isn't it? Yep, it is. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, bucket list as well. They say when you went to one of those live, Grand Final live, uh, you'll just want to keep going back. My number three, um, I've come closer to home. In fact, uh, my next three are all at home for... Um, for very special reasons, but uh, to me, the home of New Zealand cr- cricket, the sentimental home of New Zealand cr- cricket is the Basin Reserve, uh, what they say is one of the world's biggest roundabouts. It's a great cricket ground. Oh, he's flicked it away. That's a great shot. That will go for four. And now he is within touching distance. Right then, here we go. <laughs> 621 for six, and Brennan McCullum is on 298. Yeah, that was pretty special, wasn't it? Uh, one of the reasons why that was so special is because uh, it was a Monday, I think, and uh, most of the patrons had gone back to work. Uh, but they all rolled up in their suits and ties um, and uh, their best work clobber. <laughs> and uh, they paid to get in just to be there when the, that happened, and hopefully it did, and uh, it did. So but so many special moments, but it's just the basin is the basin, you know? It's just, it, you just feel it's a cr- genuine round cricket ground. Okay, it, it um, is a little bit different with the sirens and things going past with the, to the hospital with the ambulances and things, but it's just, they are the sounds and sights of the Basin Reserve. It doesn't have magnificent stands, but it has a beautiful bank. You can run, walk around the stadium. It, you know, it's, it's just got everything for me that uh, symbolises uh, what New Zealand cricket has been for a long time. And, of course, we've had some great victories there. Some great victories there. Yeah, but, I mean, you talk about that, the sirens and stuff all whizzing past... But isn't that all part of it? I mean, I feel like there's going to be a theme here that every great cricket ground has its own character to it. I know like last year, you know, we we're talking about England and there's a ground there that I don't know if it still does, but it used to have a tree in it. And it was just yeah, Canterbury. Yeah. Canterbury. Just all yeah, little, yeah. yeah, all weird, little funny, quirky, little nuances like that. I mean, that's what, you know, does that not what make a great cricket ground? Absolutely. Absolutely spot on, uh, and they're very, very important. Uh, you don't want it to be bland because you'll be sitting there for five days um, as a fan. You certainly don't want a bland experience, and uh, all of these grounds that we just talked about so far give the spectator that. Uh, Mark Richardson, uh, how did he feel? Um, what was his number three? Barbados. 
Kensington Oval in Barbados. Now, I should not like that ground because that's right, it's the site of my only test duck. So there are some evil spirits around that ground. <laughs> but it's just such a cool place to tour, the West Indies. And Barbados is, is probably, I think, the best place. You stay in really cool resorts. Party town, isn't it? Yeah, at the end of the, end of the day, you come back, you probably, as a warm down, you body surf in the ocean. And I just loved it. it yeah, it is a really cool place. And it's a good ground now as well. Party town, all right. I can tell you that. Um, there was one stage over there that uh, the, uh, a rum and coke. The coke was dearer than the rum. My goodness, um, <laughs> it was amazing. So, uh, but having said that, it was a very serious cricket ground and a tough one to play at um, Kensington Oval, particularly when the West Indies had fired up uh, people like Malcolm Marshall and Joel Garner, Michael Holding Garner, and Marshall, of course, were Barbadians, and their, that was their favourite. Uh, they were their favourite sons and. They used to get really serious um, in Barbados. So um, not a, a great ground for memories uh, from, from my point of view, to be perfectly honest. Uh, not many good ones there. Um, I'm going to stay local for my number four. And it is, um, it's one of the most talked about cricket grounds in New Zealand because it's, uh, it's not big enough, really. But boy, does it provide an atmosphere. It, it really does. And when you're out in the middle as a player and you can hear people talking to each other um, across the ground, uh, it is quite freakish, and you can hear every comment about you, every personal comment or whatever. It, it just echoes it, but it echoes cricket as well while you're out there. And that, of course, is uh, Pukekura Park. Now it's under threat uh, because of the facilities uh, aren't good enough. New Zealand Cricket and the Players Association have said, fix it. Uh, the roof's going to fall in on the grandstand or the, the, the pavilion. Um, the dressing rooms are inadequate. Um, but what you cannot replace is um, the ambience, the atmosphere, um, and the occasion there. Uh, it only takes, I think, 4,000 people to fill it. Sometimes it mm. feels like the MCG. Yeah. Sometimes. And, I mean, you talk about it being under threat. Uh, I mean, that came out in August last year, and New Zealand Cricket were giving the council uh, a year to, you know, sort things out, sort out the roof, everything else, all the facilities. And if that didn't happen, they were going to pull stumps. On it, so uh, we're getting very close to that, Smithy. A year is getting closer and closer. We're in May, not too far away. Mm. So it would be sad to see it go because uh, while we didn't have any audio here, I mean, you know, central districts still play there a lot. You know, again, we talk about characteristics of the cricket ground. That embankment, the hill, the with the, it's like the seats are dug into the hill. That's a. Ama- I yep. love that. It's such a beautiful visual. There's three. There's three banks like that. There's um, uh, if you look towards the the coastline uh, to the coast or the city area of New Plymouth, uh, there's one directly behind you uh, where the commentary boxes uh, for radio etc. are right up the top of the hill to the right on the offside as you look at it. Uh, there's a, um, a very high bank, and on the left side across the roadway that gets into the ground, there's a, ro- a, a bank behind the roadway actually. So the cars go underneath that bank and between there and the ground. Uh, there's also um, an area where you can just stand alongside people. Used to used to open the gates um, at uh, five o'clock um, if the ground if the game was coming to a great uh, crescendo, um, uh, and then people would just come from work, open up the gates, walk in, and just stand around. It was just a phenomenal place up uh, Park, and I certainly hope it's not lost. Um, but uh, Rigger had an interesting fourth one. 
Arundel, Arundel Castle in Sussex, or the Arundel Ground in Arundel, which has a castle. It's very close to, and you play for the Duchess of Norfolk. It's always, it often, the, the tourists there. So I played the West Indies there for the Duchess of Norfolk, and I played the Australians there for the Duchess of Norfolk. Uh, and it's just a beautiful place, and it's a fun game. You're playing league cricket in England, and it's a chance to come down and play with a lot of other other international cricketers and other sides uh, against an international side. And I always really enjoyed that experience. And they really put it on with the lunches and everything. Yeah, so uh, what makes it so special? Do you feel like royalty there as well if you're talking about castles and duchesses? and It's just a fantastic game to be involved in. It, it's always played with great spirit and it's a beautiful ground. Really, embankments the whole way around, apart from the pavilion, which is stunning, which sits up on on the top of an embankment, and then you got the castle over in one corner. It, yeah, it, it's absolutely stunning. Yeah, it is actually. It is a, a freakishly good cricket ground. To be honest, I played for New Zealand against the Duchess of Norfolk's eleven. Uh, went to the castle for a cocktail party uh, where the Duchess herself was hosting it, and she called the Australians beastly. I'll never forget it. Those beastly Australians are always rude when they. <laughs> Always rude when they come here, those beastly Australians. Uh, so, there we go. Those beastly Australians. <laughs> I can just imagine. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Right, okay, number five, let's get to that. Um, easy for me, um, and more so, more so from a commentary perspective, actually, um, because when it heats up in New Zealand, and it's not, it is not a, a, a pure cricket ground by any stretch of, the imagination, stretch of the imagination, but it is Eden Park. We've been talking about it this morning and we're, we're in, uh, we're, whether it has a future or not on uh, what it would look like. But uh, when it's humming, it's humming, Eden Park. It's the Century Partnership. It's going to be four more runs to Richard Hadley as well. Hadley goes to 83, 234 for 7, and the partnership now 103 runs. The marvellous batting from Richard Hadley and Ian Smith. They bought the innings around that was teetering on the brink of disaster at 85 for 6 to 234 for 7. Braxton away, that'll be the half century. Ian Smith goes to 50 for the sixth time in Test cricket. And at the same time, the New Zealand 250 is registered. Prabaka bowling to Ian Smith on 98. Spins it away. This could be it. It is it. Another Test 100 for Ian Smith. 21 fours and a six. Facing what? Where will this one go? It's gone anyway. And it's gone for six more. <laughs> 150 for Ian Smith. Well, that one went very high. It looked like it might drop in the field of play, but uh, no, it didn't. It got to the number one stand, so it was six more and what an over. Yeah, Smithy, you say that was a ground for you, uh, talking about commentary moments. You have called some very big, iconic moments in New Zealand sport, but then you also, I just had to hark back to 1990 when you hit 173 to save New Zealand's bacon against India, mate. I mean... I love that those highlights are on YouTube, by the way. Every dog has his day. Um, and if you wait long enough, as an old dog, you have one. Uh, yeah, great memories here, actually. I didn't realise that um, you were going to play that. I thought it was more for uh, perhaps the commentary side of things because my commentary memory uh, is Grant Elliott uh, hitting the six uh, to get us to the 2015 World Cup final. Um, and uh, the reason why I say that is because 
I, I almost uh, I couldn't imagine uh, the reaction to the crowd that were there. Um, mm. It was just a sea of raised arms. It was just the most amazing thing. And we, it, it, there were so many people just dancing and singing and, and, and crying uh, around the place. It was just the most spectacular night out. Um, and then, of course, to see down on the ground uh, Grant Elliott uh, himself consoling uh, people like Dale Stain, who were absolutely distraught. That, that was just, uh, I don't think um, uh, I'll go to many more special, um, special nights out. And uh, Eden Park had uh, wonderful, a wonderful way for doing that. But knowing rigour, uh, it won't be Eden Park. Knowing rigour will be somewhere obscure, surely. Now I'm going to throw in at number five. Smoky. Uh, Cullen Park in Dunedin. Most people won't even know this park, will they? Well, if you're in Dunedin, you'll know the park. It's the home of the McCullums. Yes. It's where I played uh, professional cricket for the first time because I got paid $2 a run playing for Albion. <laughs> and it paid for some good nights out, actually, $2 a run. But it's a cool little place. There are some average places to play club cricket in Dunedin. But Culling Park, and the key with Culling Park, why I love it so much, is the the pavilion is full of cricketing memorabilia and some amazing cricket team memorabilia. It, it's a full cricket immersion place. I can remember playing cricket there um, with and also against um, McCullum Senior. So the two, so Brendan and uh, and and um, I got a, a complete block. Um, yeah, the two McCullum Nathan. boys, Nathan. Nathan, Brendan and Nathan, uh, and they not were they, Stu. not well. I was playing with Stu, and Brendan and Nathan were, were playing with a tennis ball on the boundary. Just little kids. That's why Brendan will always be a kid to me. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I just see him as a child. Yeah, interesting. Culling Park. I don't know if you've ever been to Culling Park, but however, we also um, came up with worst cricket grounds, worst cricket downs. Uh, mine is the uh, Ibn e Kazim Bagh Stadium, uh, originally known as the Old Fort Stadium in Multan in Pakistan. And the reason I say that is because it was the worst experience in cricket and most scary experience in cricket, apart from perhaps playing the West Indies. Was um, we played there and they sold. Uh, 10,000 tickets to a ground that held 8,000 um, and so what they effectively did was they start to came out, come over the walls uh, so we lost um, they had so many when they when we batted um, the boundaries are at their full extent right so uh, the ropes were the boundaries but when these people started to come over the walls they couldn't stop them and they couldn't call a game off because that would have caused a massive riot um, because they didn't see much cricket there and then um, as they to find seats for them, of course, they had to encroach on the ground. So when they batted, the boundaries were effectively a lot smaller. Uh, so nothing worked our way that day. We got a couple of bum decisions. We got um, we got soundly beaten and hop, had to hop on a bus. There's no accommodation in Multan, and we headed about an hour and a half down the road on the bus and went to a place called the Bahawaho uh, Guest House. And uh, the activity there was rat chasing with a cricket <laughs> bat. That was, that was amazing. Um, so... Uh, I'll never forget my day at Multan Stadium. Fortunately now, uh, it has changed. It has changed big time, and it's um, quite a plush stadium with uh, a really nice hotel, apparently, where you can stay. But Multan, for me, for rigour, um, not one I would have... In fact, this is Martin Crowe's favourite ever ground, this one. So, rigour, hmm, what do you think? Nope, he's not thinking. 
Oh, uh, looks like we uh, don't have the audio there. Sorry, Smithy. Uh, I will tell you, yeah, Adelaide Oval. Okay. Adelaide Oval. Don't know why um, Rigger would justify that, but anyway. Apparently it's um, to do with the flies. Probably. Just doesn't like the flies, but um, they're everywhere in Australia, mate. Oh, yeah. Get real, Rigger. Put some spray on. <laughs> and then, and it's probably a reason why Australian flies took a partiality to Rigger anyway. Uh, was like their fans. <laughs> 10.24 here on SENZ. Uh, experts in agriculture covering your equipment, parts and service needs to help you succeed in your field. Summer or winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. It's Harness Racing New Zealand Pacing for Purpose Season 2. Right, yeah, uh, we give uh, the proceeds uh, of our uh, success with our Pacing for Purpose to Women's Refuge, of course. Uh, every one of our shows has a different charity at the moment. We're online to give them a check for uh, $837.50. Do you even give checks these days? But uh, that's what they're due at the moment. We want to increase that. Uh, racing at Alexandra Park uh, at 6.35 today. Today, racing at Alexandra Park. Um, it is race three, number four, the Moonstone. Justified big rap by winning on debut, but uh, after breaking early, certainly has a good motor. Manners are a slight concern, but should be paying well. The Moonstone, uh, that is uh, race three, number four at Alexandra Park. And yes, uh, Women's Refuge is our main benefactor there. It's time to go to the news. And that is uh, with Aroha. <laughs> Right, uh, NRL's Magic Round kicks off tomorrow at uh, Suncorp uh, Stadium where the Warriors must take a home game across the ditch and the hosts, the Broncos, get to play an away fixture at home. Geez, they've had a great run, haven't they, the Broncos? Uh, it's another great, great piece of scheduling by the powers that be and as long-suffering Warriors fans, it's something we've become accustomed to and then the scheduled uh, match-up against the defending Premiers uh, coming off a loss and a back to full strength. The Wounded Warriors uh, definitely have a huge task ahead of us, uh, ahead of them and uh, for us too, uh, watching on from at home. Joining us now to break down the weekend as one of our favourite homegrown analysts. He genuinely loves this game and we love hearing from him and that's uh, Sammy Ackerman. Uh, Sam, good morning to you. Um, just a quick uh, report card on uh, the season to this date as it's continuing to capture your imagination. Yeah, listen, the NRL um, brings so much to the table and it's it, it, whether it's part of the uh, publicity machine that goes with it and just the news cycle that comes out of Australia compared to necessarily the news cycles are here, it always feels like there's a story, it always feels like there's a narrative um, to go along with games. It doesn't always have to be drama, but league doesn't mind um, a bit of that. But the discussion around um, refereeing, the the the, uh, the hip drop or whatever the focus kind of goes to, there's always something that keeps you engaged so far this season. I think the level of footy in general uh, has been at a pretty high standard. Uh, and when you see a result like the Tigers, who haven't won in, what, 273 days, taking down the reigning premiers, it is uh, so many competitions can lay claim to anyone can beat anyone on any given day, but nothing illustrates it more clearly than that. Right. Um, the Warriors news of uh, the week has been Marcello Montoya re-signing um, for the side, uh, just just re uh, reinforcing uh, the backline strength. Good signing. 
Yeah, very good signing. I think Montoya um, is one of the uh, the most reliable uh, warriors, um, certainly in the in the back line. Uh, he he brings in energy consistently. Now, energy doesn't always come through with uh, the right results at all time, but Marcelo Montoya has never made a mistake through lack of effort. Um, he, it's always been uh, putting in... The, he's got a wicked fend. He's got a good turn of pace. He's comfortable at centre uh, or wing. Uh, I think that I was, I was concerned that he might be a guy uh, to fall out of the rotate, given he was off contract uh, with, the, uh, with the Warriors with the return of uh, Roger Tuivasa-Sheck. But uh, I, I'm really glad to see him stick around. He brings uh, something that this club desperately needs and I think has been a big part of the turnaround. Right, let's look at uh, tomorrow night's uh, games very briefly, if we could, Sam. Bulldogs, Raiders, how do you see this one going? Yeah, listen, both teams have have been showing a fair bit of guts um, this season. I don't think either of them had the return um, that they would expect so far. The the Jack Whiten drama has been the most recent one for for the Raiders, and it it feels like Ricky Stewart's under some kind of pressure uh, every other week. But I I like it as a a game to kick off the round because... Both can uh, both can produce uh, a high level of football, and both can uh, spread the ball and use the weapons they have out wide. Injury is still a, a, a factor for the dogs, but I, I like I like the Raiders in this one. I think that they're um, showing a little bit of a, a momentum shift, a good performance uh, last week. So they are on the verge of the eight. One of those teams that's sitting there on ten points, and uh, a win takes them from eleventh uh, straight up into what sixth. So uh, or up there in those uh, potentially on the same amount of points as second. So that shows you how close the uh, the table is right now. So I, I like the Raiders, um, and I think they've got a bit of juice behind them at the moment. Uh, Seagulls Broncos is the second game on Friday night. Of course, it's basically um, a hosting weekend for the Broncos. Broncos, so they can get the social side into gear on Saturday and Sunday. But uh, the Seagulls got outplayed for the entire game last week um, by Foran and the Titans. So they'll be hurting a wee bit. And uh, the Broncos uh, got a hiding, absolute hiding last week. So this is uh, an interesting bounce back game. Yeah, it is. Listen, I think the Broncos, and I don't mean to be disparaging to them, I think that top spot on the ladder is a little bit of a mask for where they, they really are. I think they've had some had a good draw along the way, and as you mentioned, certainly not a bad draw. Getting a, a home game um, for an away fixture is uh, by, that sto- uh, by that token as well, but that's par for the course of the Broncos. They've been looked after wonderfully with Friday night games and long turnarounds for well, forever. Um, so I, I, I actually expect a huge um, turnaround from Manly in this because they are under a just a mountain, a mountain of pressure to um, to lift their game. Tom Trevojevic being back in the squad. Let's see how he goes. Let's see if he starts. There's a lot of talk about him coming in at the teams, obviously, when he's um, fit or otherwise. But he, he's the key. He's playing. They, their opportunity to win goes through the roof. He's out, and suddenly there's a, a real pressure with it there. But a lot of faces coming back into the into the team, and um, they need it. Manly have got has a pretty good record of playing up in Queensland as, as well. So um, I, I feel like the Broncos are right for the picking because Manly should be angry. They should be. Right, they should be angry. Um, we might be a little bit angry as well, but uh, so will the Panthers after being upset by West uh, Tigers last week. So we get the five o'clock uh, five o'clock kickoff on Saturday. 
I, I'm intrigued um, by this game, and we, we've, there's been much said of the, the three games in 11 days. Well, as we're into this third game now, I mean, I don't think it was going to be an easy fixture by any stretch anyway, uh, but I, it, it's not a home game. It's not played here in, uh, in New Zealand, but this is a home game. If you've ever been to play the, see the Warriors play uh, at Suncorp, they get a big crowd and they get a lot of uh, expats want to support them, even against the Queensland teams. Against the Panthers, that everyone in Queensland hates, it'll still be a home crowd field. They'll be cheering on the Warriors. The Warriors have won a lot of goodwill this year, so let's not view it as an away game in the most typical of contexts, but it is away, as in we don't get to see it, and they'll, uh, we don't get to have that um, that local passion, but they'll be well cheered. No one, no one in that stadium besides the Panthers fans who make the trip will want to see them win. So on that side of things... 40,000 will be a, uh, a real boost to their um, their confidence as well. And uh, uh, the, the Roosters' performance is their worst performance of, of the season, in my opinion. Uh, people could argue the Newcastle loss um, into that one, but not seeing them um, fire a shot in any, any real context was a little of concern for me. They had enough opportunities. They were doing really well till that try just before halftime, which is a, always a crucial point for any team to score. But the Warriors have traditionally been able to bounce back from that of late and, and show they've got a bit more courage. I, I think they were hard done by conceding two tries to a Roosters team um, that was playing with this, uh, the kind of pace they were running at. I don't think is a disaster. And of course, the referees are a, uh, an issue in, in the eyes of many. But for that to be the Warriors' worst performance by this stage of the season is remarkable. Honestly, to, to, for us to look at that and go, that's bad by the Warriors' standards... The standards have raised so much that we're disappointed by um, something that was relatively competitive for a large period of time. I expect it to be equally competitive against uh, a Panthers side who will be hurting, uh, and they are a team that is on the um, you know, capable of, of turning an odd at every given point, as you mentioned, uh, towards full strength. But I'm, uh, I expect the Warriors to, be, to come out with a bit of a hiss and a roar, uh, in the long, not right from the start, obviously, because you know it's the Warriors. But they will, um, they'll have enough firepower. And if uh, I, I love, I love Chance Nickel Cookstar being back. I think that's big. Um, obviously, we still touch and go. Last I heard on uh, Tohu Harris, um, but if he can run, then uh, get a game that, that makes a difference too so the slow see those troops filtering back uh, and if they can play a bit of dry dry football hopefully in uh, in Brisbane and, and start to play to their strength I think they drifted from the game plan slightly and that hurt them a lot I, I felt like while they're going through the motions not much of what the Warriors did on attack was bad but it was pedestrian it didn't have any punch to it it didn't really feel threatening but they, they ticked all the boxes they kicked the corners uh, they kept a, a, a decent line speed up but there was no, there was no aggressive defence as we've seen previously we put the uh, opposition under the right level of pressure so that's what I want to see from the Warriors those hard kick chases and using the uh, defences as a weapon rather than just a holding tool Sam Ackerman, uh, as always, uh, sum things up so beautifully in the game of a rugby league. It is a massive weekend. It's the magic round, of course, uh, all at uh, Suncorp Stadium. Uh, it would be nice to think that uh, we could host one at Mount Smart at some uh, point in time. Oh, I doubt tell it. me about it. I d- <laughs> yeah, I doubt it, Sam. I doubt it. Have a great, have a, have a great day. Uh, thanks, Sam. Enjoy the weekend. See you soon. Yeah, cheers, man. Uh, 10.43 here on uh, SENZ. Uh, ran out of time, really. Storm Rabbitohs is a big match on Saturday, as well as the Roosters and the Cowboys on Sunday. It is a feast. Let's hope the ground uh, holds up well and uh, stays intact for those uh, latter matches. But, yeah, uh, the Warriors and the Panthers, mouth-watering. 10.43.
Brand are experts in agriculture, covering your equipment, parts and service needs to help you succeed in your field. Summer or winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Number of uh, texts have come in on a number of subjects this morning. Uh, Richard has uh, come in. Smithy, ideally sell off uh, Mount Smart, uh, Eden Park, which has uh, obviously been discussed, and build a waterfront stadium. Uh, but what about cricket? Not really suitable at a new stadium. The best venue would be Victoria Park, which is another walk-up venue from the central city, which would be too expensive to create into a venue to hold 30,000 for one-day international matches. Western Springs, too far away and an ass to get out from. Yeah, um, there are so many quandaries, uh, Richard, that uh, come to mind when you're looking at uh, a venue, an ideal venue, in our very biggest uh, catchment area, which of course is Auckland. Mm. Uh, questions, questions, dollars, dollars. Uh, Lou from Lyle Bay. G'day, Lou. Uh, hi, can I suggest for the poster um, of uh, the face of New Zealand rugby, many faces of rugby, a child, Jonah, Pine tree, Porsche, etc. Like it. I, I like it. Uh, instead of just one face, can't uh, single one out. Uh, the many faces uh, that uh, epitomise uh, the game and its history. I like the idea of pine tree coming in. Uh, that would be good. Uh, morning, Smithy. My face of rugby would be Damien McKenzie. He gives hope to those players out there that aren't six foot four and 120 kilos. He appeals to the young kids. I bet there are a lot of young ones out there that mimic his quirky smile when he kicks goals. He also has an infectious personality, a great advert for the game. The Sam Whitelock types appeal to us oldies, but we aren't the target. Good point. Very, very good point. Um, so, uh, Steve, I like that. And Damien McKenzie, certainly uh, a very, very recognisable face. There's uh, no doubt about that. Um, who's on the front of Rugby News? Not many options. Promotions Department of NZR are AWOL. Mm, AWOL. Uh, absent without leave. Uh, Pete from Christchurch said, I would have two faces, Ruby Tui and Sam Whitelock. Uh, Ken says, Smithy, Rico Ioane, four more years. Cheers, Ken. Thought there'd be a Blues player in there when you texted in, Ken. It is uh, 10.50 here on SENZ. Thanks for the text. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. The loveracing.nz update. Your home for everything thoroughbred racing. Visit loveracing.nz. Racing's biggest fan. Yes, it's good morning again to uh, Louis Herman Watt. And in your neck of the woods, uh, Louis, it's quite uh, busy because uh, there is uh, racing, I uh, believe, at Addington tonight. There's uh, certainly some greyhounds, but... More importantly, from your point of view, um, we're on the synthetic at Rickerton today. We are, and I think I'm going to go down, actually. Um, I think I'm going to go down for a look-see. I haven't been to the Rickerton synthetic meet before, so I'm probably going to cruise down, see Tim Mills and the crew there. Um, oh, gee whiz, look. These synthetic meets, there's an art to punting them. Some days I feel like I've got it, some days I don't know what I'm doing. Horses either like the synthetic or they don't. And also, the other thing is you need they need low draws. And sometimes they can get up on the speed and just be so hard to put away. So, look, I actually, funnily enough, found it a little bit tricky to find um, something that I absolutely loved today. I didn't mind light up for Pam Robson in race number four. It's one of the better races on the card, the uh, 75 over the mile. But she's drawn out wide uh, he's drawn out wide light up so 
I'm not sure what I want to do there. Double eight, double three. Can I do some crowdsourcing on your show, please, Smithy? Can, can anybody who's got some some mail from um, or for the record and synthetic today, whether that's from any sort of connections or they've done the form themselves? I'm going to head down there and. I'm not feeling too confident, which is not a good way of going to the track. So if anybody sends through any best bets, could you just forward them on, please? Okay, uh, I've got a text here from you, uh, for, for you actually, Louis. You don't have to answer this if you don't want. Uh, before I give you the text, uh, weather for Saturday, what's the track? What do you think the grass track will be like at Riggedon? Uh, it's actually been really warm, bugger all rain. So unless we, I think, I think it's due to rain tomorrow, which would be a spanner, but at, at, at the moment, it would... Uh, I'd be surprised if it was, wasn't a good or a soft fight. Right, okay, here's the text. Let me guess, Louis will stop more $2 shots like he did yesterday. He will tip Devil in Disguise and Sir Albert. Those with records on that horrible synthetic include Perrier's Legacy, Light Up, Pew uh, Respiria and Da Vinci Girl. That's from Wayne from Carmo. Obviously a great mate of yours. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> look, look. Well, you know, I didn't actually tip anything yesterday, I don't think. So if you're confusing me with Paul Mawadi, that fraudster from um, the TAB, well, that that might be the case. Oh. But no, no way, oh. I'm not tipping those, and I would actually prefer oh. your best bet. I've got to bring Paul Mawadi in here. Did you hear that, Paul Mawadi? Mate, I'm, I'm willing to go head-to-head with Louis any time, any place. Best bet of the week, whatever. We're, we're, let's keep a record, and we'll find out who the fraud is. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Sports betting today. Sports betting today, Paul. Well, the, uh, the NBA playoffs continue, and we've got a game two in the Eastern Conference. Boston Celtics taking on the Philadelphia 76ers. Joel Embiid, who didn't take part in game one, he's back for the 76ers, and the punters are jumping on. Can't get enough of the 365 head-to-head on the Philadelphia 76ers to win. The Boston Celtics, they're not without their friends. They're playing a dollar twenty-seven to win game two, then, and they are seven and a half point favourites. The boys have put up a couple of boosted markets as well. Uh, the most popular one, though, Tatum, Brown, and Harden all to score twenty-five or more points. That's been boosted out to seven dollars and fifty cents. Been very, very popular with punters. The other boosted market, Tatum and Embiid each to record a double-double. That's been boosted from three thirty up to four twenty. Also quite popular. Um, but in terms of the head-to-head, the 76ers are the way to go, according to punters. 3.65 to pick up game two. Good on you, Paul Moati. Have a terrific day and uh, love the battle with Louis there. Time to get to the news with Araha. equipment, parts and service needs to help you succeed in your field. From behind the stumps to behind the mic, nothing gets past Smithy. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Right, it's uh, 11.03 here on uh, SENZ. Uh, We're trying to get hold of uh, David Bileski because we want to talk about uh, the Wells Fargo Championship, the latest uh, event in the PGA, which just starts uh, tonight, New Zealand time. It's the 20th edition of the, the Wells Fargo Championship. Um, it's worth $20 million. It'll be played at the Quail Hollow Golf Course in Charlotte, North Carolina. And the defending champion is Max Homer, who's won two of the last three, actually. So he's certainly 
certainly fits uh, Max Homer's game. In fact, we've got uh, David Bileski now. David, good morning to you. Um, once again, thanks for your time. Yes, uh, just talking about the Quail Hollow uh, hosting of uh, the Wells Fargo. Uh, this is uh, the final week of the top 70 players in the PGA points list to earn their place, um, the opportunity to do so, to earn their place in the PGA Championship at Oak Hill. So quite a significant event, this one. It is, yeah. Good morning, Snowy. Good to be with you again. And um, yeah, big event, not just in terms of qualifying for um, another major, but obviously um, a run of designated events that have kicked off the year in pretty um, stellar fashion. So we do we do miss a couple of the big names at the top of the board in the name of um, John Rahm and Scotty Scheffler, who are quite clearly head and shoulders above the rest of the pack at the moment. Um, but other than that, um, basically the, the elite of the PGA Tour is here this week at a, at a stunning golf course. Uh, folks, you can uh, get hold of uh, David or, or contact David, really, or follow him on Twitter at Deep Dive Golf. And I can promise you it's uh, worth your while in terms of tipping for tournaments because uh, he manages to get some fairly healthy dividends at times, which is... Uh, which is great if you if you intend to have a bet on it, but if you just want to find out more about it, um, that as well. Uh, David, um, of interest is the return here of Rory McIlroy. Now, LTAB has him as an $8 favourite, quite a solid favourite, actually, ahead of Cantlay at $14. But Rory McIlroy, whose um, Masters turned into a nightmare, really. It was, and last time I was on the show, it was um, you and I sort of lauding and, and praising what we'd seen from um, Rory McIlroy's game, and it's it's difficult to to describe because it's just so polar opposite to what we see all the rest of this year, which has been just absolutely stunning. And one of one of the the promising things for me that I saw going into the Masters this year was working with um, Dr. Bob Rotella, who's one of the leading sports psychologists in the world, and particularly in the game of golf, and and it does appear to be this mental hurdle that he really struggles with at the Masters and around Augusta. And it was almost a feeling of, well, if he, if he can't do it this time, then, then will he ever do it? And um, unfortunately, he, he himself said, you know, he's incredibly disappointed with the way that he played across that weekend. I think it shocked um, the, the majority of the golf world, um, the performance that he put in off the off the back of that. And then obviously, um, the RBC Heritage, he ended up um, skipping that tournament, um, which was his second miss of an elevated event this season, um, and decided um, that he, he needed some extra time off. I, I think that will do some good. I think it was a wise decision, you know, he returns to a tournament that, um, quite frankly, I mean, if there's any course on the PGA Tour that's going to be built for Roy McIlroy's Crowell Hollow, you know, he's won at this tournament um, three times around this course, um, and he's got numerous other top tens, and he's just absolutely dominated the place. So um, it kind of makes sense to to forego the the RBC Heritage, which isn't necessarily the best setup for him, um, and then make a return on Crowell Hollow following what was, frankly, a, a pretty embarrassing Masters for him. Yeah, I read an article actually uh, this morning uh, when I was uh, doing a little bit of research on this um, and uh, he kind of uh, intimated, Rory, that um, all the live golf and the fact that he's almost been uh, the front man for uh, tradition uh, may have paid a, a bigger price on him uh, than you would have thought, which in, in essence I would imagine would be making Greg Norman smile a wee bit. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw that as well. I think we, we've... We've always sort of known that, that over this last year that Rory McIlroy's borne a lot of the weight and, and carrying the PGA Tour and responding to these, these claims to live and he's kind of fronted a lot of these changes and, and that does have to have a toll and I, I kind of came at it from a from 
another perspective of well, you know, he's he's the 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 darling of the PGA Tour, as it were, and and he's turning up at a tournament where all these live golfers are returning. And frankly, a lot of a few of the live golfers, as I kind of alluded to, we're going to give a good tilt to them, and they did in the form of um, Phil Mixon and Patrick Reed and, and Brooks Kepa. Um, we're all right there on the the, the tip top of the the leaderboard until Ram came over the top of them. So, um, you know, I've I've i suspected that that Rory might actually rise to the occasion in that circumstance and and try and put up a challenge to ensure one of those those live golfers didn't um, get the the green jacket and cause um, some pretty some pretty big questions I think in terms of the shape of professional golf if that had happened. Um, but no, it obviously it went the other way and I, and and again I. It's, it's hard to predict with that sort of stuff in terms of once you move away from the statistics into how a player is going to react in that that kind of pressure environment. I think we get interesting questions this week on the DP World Tour as well and the Italian Open, which is it's played at the, the host course of the Ryder Cup, and it's going to be interesting in that field of who's going to rise to the occasion under the eyes of the Ryder Cup captains um, because performing well at that course and, and potentially getting a victory at that course obviously suddenly earmarks you um, in terms of selection for the European team, and it's very, very hard once you move out of those statistical analysis to predict how someone psychologically is going to react to being in that pressure cooker environment and, and unfortunately for Rory um, you know it didn't go well at the Masters and and um, it, maybe it is that, that build up of a, of a pretty long year so hopefully he's arriving back refreshed hopefully we're seeing the best of him because it's obviously a golf course that he loves and knows extremely well and um, if, if the best Rory McIlroy turns up then, then he can absolutely go and win this event. Um, I, I probably think that he needs a little bit more time. I think that he, he may just need a couple of starts to, to get back going um, and, and recover from um, what we saw at Augusta earlier. Right, okay, let's look at um, uh, Quail Hollow itself. Um, what kind of golfer does it suit? Well, it's, a, it's an extremely tough, long course. It's it's over 7,500 yards and it's um, a par 71, so in and of itself that um, that tells you a lot that you need to know about the course straight away and that it's extremely long. Um, it has a huge um, disproportionate amount of long irons. Um, 75% of your strokes are going to come from over 150 yards with your irons um, and then further again with the 175 yard upwards and 200 yard um, upwards approach play really gets weighted so uh, for me I'm looking for strong drivers of the golf ball people who are um, hopefully finding fairways as well but the the key is probably the distance because that's then going to assist as well with some of those long lines that we're going to get into these greens because um, it's it's a tricky course it is tough it's not going to be easy um, particularly if there's any weather um, coming up that can that can really add to the, the difficulty of this course um, and then yeah it's it's going to be who makes the putts from there so I think in terms of the, the field you've got some some uh, notable names obviously in terms of the, the strength of field that we have this week but it's also something where if you've got a, quite a particular skill set in terms of your driving distance off the tee um, and the long lines coming in then that goes a long way to uh, to ensuring your victory around the green and chipping's not too difficult um, and then from there it just becomes um, who can put the best um, at that point. Right okay so uh, let's look at uh, some likely candidates here I mean uh, the, you know, once you hit a, a, a nice patch of form, quite often it stays for a, a week or two, even maybe a month for professional golfers, which means uh, I guess Tony Finau becomes uh, a, a possibility to go back to back here, although this field much, much stronger than in Mexico last week. 
Yeah, absolutely, potentially. Um, and it's quite interesting because Vedanta Viata, which was the host course last week on the Mexico Open, also has a similar profile in terms of particularly those long irons. It's it's, it's also a very, very long course, um, and it does see a hugely disproportionate number of shots come from that 200-plus yard um, back of the pro play. And, and Tony Fina won that tournament quite comfortably. We've sort of seen that his ability to win tournaments has come um, in that last kind of 18 months, and um, now he's got four wins in 19 tournaments, so he's really putting a, a good charge. And this this isn't necessarily a, a bad spot for him whatsoever. Um, his, his long irons last week was really one of the keys to, to his victory as well as the, the fact he not only drives it long off the tee, but he's, he's very accurate as well. And we saw a good uptake in his driving accuracy last week. So I do I do think he's a, a very good chance. Um, the the one at the top of the board for me that really intrigued me is Sam Burns. I think that um, he's flying under the radar a little bit. His game has really started to turn back around um, at the moment. And he's had a sudden couple of years without any the sort of like huge victories. But one of the courses I have earmarked is um, pretty correlated to Quail Hollow in terms of form is um, in his book and the the course of the Vaspar Championship and Sam Burns' record around that course is um, phenomenal. He's um, he's won that tournament twice and then last and then this year put up a pretty stunning defence um, when finishing six as well. So he's gone win-win six around that course um, and um, I think that arriving here in the sort of form that he's turning in, um, that he might be a sneaky player and can get him at um, 32s at the moment. All right. Okay. Uh, Sam Burns is an interesting one. What about the, the rejuvenation of Jordan Spieth, of uh, possibly Ricky Fowler, um, the, these blokes who are, and Jason Day, uh, looking like perhaps coming back. Now, both Day and Spieth have been contenders uh, to fade away on the fourth round uh, so far this uh, particular PGA season. Any chance they might um, complete the deal this time? Yeah, the the most interesting of those names is probably Jason Day for me. I mean, he's a previous champion here in 2018 and um, was a ninth in 2017 as well. Jordan Spieth, I probably prefer in a... a one of, one of Jordan Spieth's greatest assets to his game is his creativity around the greens, and I don't think that he gets to use that to his full advantage at this point. So, um, yeah, I, I wonder if there's perhaps better spots for, for Jordan Spieth. Jason Day's intri- intriguing, and, and we've seen him... Um, in contention a number of times this year. It's a course that really, really suits him, um, and he was ninth of the PGA Championship at this course as well. Ricky Fowler, again, we've seen some really good signs, and he's gaining a ton of strokes on the field. Like Statistically, he rates out really well, but with with that, I also read it in the context of he's, he hasn't actually really challenged for any win. He's kind of ended up towards the top end of the leaderboard eventually without ever being really in it. Um, and so I'm interested to see after what's been a pretty torrid run for um, for Ricky Fowler if he can um, turn it around at some point and when he does actually find himself in contention going down the back nine, how does he react to that situation? Does he then push forward or does he kind of fade away? Because we haven't actually seen him in that pressure cooker kind of environment just yet. Um, this is, however, the tournament he got his um, made him PGA to a victory, so he's obviously going to have um, good vibes around the place and, and some good memories. And his um, his game certainly has turned around to to a point where he's um, he's one of the leading chances. Um, but yeah, I, I think there's probably others I prefer um, towards that top of the board. David, you mentioned uh, Sam Burns before. Of course, Sam Burns has uh, won the Dell Match Play uh, this year, and he beat Cameron uh, convincingly. Beat Cameron Young in the final, actually. Cameron Young uh, in this um, market is uh, at this stage. 
on the third line of betting. Uh, Cameron Young. Cameron Young, yeah. Well, I mean, you've you've nailed it. So you've got the two names that are out of me that are at the top of my um, card this week. So I've got um, Cam Young at 22s, and I've got um, Sam Burns at 33s as, as my two favourites. Um, Cameron Young's uh, an incredible ball striker, really, really long off the tee, which is, goes a long way around Crow Hollow. He doesn't give up a ton of accuracy when he's doing that either, and his approach play is um, some of the best on the PGA Tour, especially this year. His um, his approach play has been excellent. So um, those are the, the two leading lights for me. Cam Young now arrives at this course as well with um, Paul Story on the bag, so he's got some um, fantastic experience from um, the caddy too, who um, that I think that goes a long way to... to getting his maiden victory. We've seen some pretty notable lights get their um, their debut victory the PGA, at the Quail Hollow course as well. So Rory McIlroy achieved his first PGA Tour victory around here um, and Rich Fowler, as I said, um, also did so. So mm. um, he's, um, he's a leading chance for me. Okay, right. Um, we won't get uh, any more out of you than that because we'd like you to be visited <laughs> uh, at, at Deep Dive Golf. That's the whole idea and one of the reasons that... Uh, uh, you've become so accessible for us, David. So plenty to look for there at uh, Deep Dive Golf, uh, folks, including, I would imagine, at some point shortly, we're going to start thinking quite seriously about uh, the next major, which is the PGA Championship, uh, PGA Championship at Oak Hill, which could feature, or probably will feature, two New Zealanders and Ryan Fox and uh, Stephen Elka. Yeah, very exciting. Um, I think it's a good spot for, for Foxy again because um, O'Kill plays incredibly long. Um, Stephen Alcott's obviously had just an incredible couple of years. I think he's possibly going to struggle with the distance that we're going to find around O'Kill, but it'll be great to see him um, teeing up with um, the others in the in the major. But um, I think it's, it's a good spot for, for Ryan Fox. And he's, um, he had a little bit of illness um, earlier this year. And so I don't know if we've seen the best of him. Um, just yet, so obviously he um, he had a, a WG at the I think it was the Arbusty Heritage um, because he was suffering from flu and then um, then missed the cut pretty spectacularly at the um, at Texas Open. So um, since then, twenty twenty six of the Masters, I thought was a pretty stellar performance for Foxy. Um, I think we'd be very very proud of that and his um, debut around that track. And um, I thought that it was course that would fit him well and, and he performed well and then. Um, yeah, PGA Championship coming up at a course that I think could really suit him. So again, I think he's the dark horse going in. But um, yeah, I've I've got one future on the PGA Championship at the moment that I've recommended people, which was after the Mexico Open victory was Tony Finau um, at 33s because his number had moved in the market following that um, that victory, which was pretty dominant. Um, the field itself was weak, but in terms of um, the fact he beat John Rahm quite convincingly, um, he was quite far ahead of the rest of the field, and it. Um, in terms of the metrics of the course, um, should match up pretty well to Oak Hill. So that's the that's the name that I'll give out for that one there. David Bileski, always uh, fantastic to catch up with you, uh, folks. Visit him on Deep Dive Golf. Uh, you will get some information. I can assure you of that. Uh, it is a terrific uh, site to follow on Twitter. Um, We'll keep an eye on those tips over the weekend and uh, catch up again shortly, David, uh, hopefully prior to the PGA Championship. But thanks for your time again. Yeah, I'd love that. Sounds great. Cheers, Matty. Have a good Cheers. Uh, David uh, Bileski there with us, folks. Uh, always uh, very, very interesting and very informed uh, man to listen to when it comes to um, uh, the, the research that he does in terms of players to suit courses. Players to suit courses. And that is so intriguing. Um, when you look at the style of golf, whether they're big hitters, whether they've got good, good short games, whether they're 
good on greens which have difficult grass etc i mean uh, that's where you know the real deep research goes in and you'll find that on deep dive golf 11 19 here on SENZ. we shall be going to the sports desk very shortly and are experts in agriculture, covering your equipment, parts and service needs to help you succeed in your field. Summer or winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Turn up the volume, we're crossing live to the sports desk. What's fresh? What's making waves? Let's find out. Right, uh, let's head across to uh, Logan Swinkles, who has uh, the latest for us. Yeah, I'll start with some sad news, Smithy. Uh, Tori Bowley, the sprinter who won three Olympic medals at the 2016 Rio Olympic Games, has passed away at the age of 32. Her death was announced uh, to Thursday by her management company and USA Track and Field, but no cause of death was given. Growing up in Sandhill, Mississippi, Bowie was coaxed into track as a teenager and quickly rose up the ranks as a sprinter and long jumper, where she attended Southern Mississippi and swept the long jump NCAA championships at the indoor and outdoor events back in 2011. She turned in an electric performance at the 2016 Rio Games, where she won silver in the 100 metre and bronze in the 200 metre. She then ran the anchor leg on a 4 by 100 team with Tiana Bartoletti, Allison Felix, and English Gardner. Great name to take gold. A year later, she won the 100 metres at the 2017 World Championship in London. So, yes, uh, some very sad news today, Smithy, in the world of track and field. Yeah, that's, um, that's not good news at all. Um, that's a real shock. I, I just picked up on that um, a little bit earlier. So, no uh, cause of death. Sometimes uh, you wonder about that. I mean, my mind goes back to... Um, uh, who was uh, who was that? Uh, Flojo Florence Griffiths Joyner, way 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 back, um, mm. stunning runner, absolutely brilliant runner, and of course is uh, proven to be full of um, steroids etc. And uh, she died very pre- prematurely. So we'll wait for um, more news um, on that. I would imagine going forward. But uh, yeah, uh, in- interesting. Um, we'll, we'll keep uh, keep an eye out for that news. Very very sad news. Uh, very sad and uh, top of mind because of her recent performances. What is next? Uh, yes, to the NFL, Smithy, where Randall Cobb is joining the New York Jets, reuniting with his former quarterback, Aaron Rodgers. They're continuing to surround Aaron Rodgers with familiar faces with that new signing announced today. The Jets did reveal terms, didn't reveal terms, but it is a one-year deal, the league sources told ESPN. Uh, it all goes all the way back to when Cobb, Cobb and Rodgers played together Way back, they played for 10 seasons, and who knew that they would then reunite like this. Cobb becomes the fourth ex-Packer sorry, to sign with the Jets, joining wide receiver Alan Lazar, which is that's a really interesting move for me. Uh, quarterback Tim Boyle and tackle Billy Turner. Offensive coordinator Nathaniel Hackett also is a big part of that reunion, where he served as the Packers' offensive coordinator from 2019 to 2021. Uh, today, the Jets also added to their defensive line, starting former Seattle Seahawks defensive tackle Al Woods. But the uh, the addition of Cobbs comes as no surprise, considering his uh, close relationship with Rogers. And Rogers actually put together like uh, a list of go-to guys that he wants to see in the team when he met with them back in March. That list, of course, included 
Cobb. It also had free agent tight end Mercedes Lewis and wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr., who has uh, since signed with the Baltimore Ravens. So you can see there, Smithy, quite a bit of uh, getting a bit of a Packers flavor going back to the New York Jets. And I mentioned Alan Lazard, which is. An interesting one for me because he was kind of one of those young wide receivers that they were starting to build the offense around the Green Bay Packers. He's only four years into his season. He didn't have an amazing season, but then no one really did at the Packers. So interesting that he's jumped ship and followed uh, Aaron Rodgers to New York. It is, actually. Um, I, I just wondered, I just wondered um, what kind of flow on effect that might have uh, because when you get a power of uh, and, and someone who's been so long, at um, uh, the Green Bay Packers, so you take an Aaron Rodgers. Usually he's surrounded by people that are very faithful to him, uh, people that play well with him, uh, people that uh, he's comfortable being around. Um, and you, often you'd, you'd say to guys like, you know, he might say, look, follow me. Um, you know, he might have a receiver or someone along the lines that he's very, very comfortable finding. And that, uh, I mean, and I'll give you a, for instance, um, Gronkowski. Uh, of course, when uh, Tom Brady went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, um, who came out of retirement all of a sudden? Gronkowski. Because Brady would have said to him, come and follow me, come with me, we'll have some fun, I'll find you on the field, and uh, we'll make a lot of money. And uh, the Gronk had no problem at all swapping, so there you go. Uh, anything else? Nah. Just got to start, mate. Oh, so you don't want to talk, you don't want to talk about... Um, uh, any ice hockey? I see where this is going. Yes, yes. The uh, Toronto Maple Leafs lost game one, 4 2. Yes. Uh, I actually I was busy with work, so I didn't actually see a lot of that game. I saw a lot more of the second game, though the Seattle Kraken and the uh, Dallas Stars. Joel Bavowski returning uh, from injury and banging in four or four goals for the Dallas Stars. Man, he is. He is the kind of guy that he gets better with age. It's you. You would think a sport like ice hockey, uh, it's a young man's game, but he finds ways to turn turn back the clock. But I, they did go to overtime, and I do love overtime in a Stanley Cup playoffs game, Smithy. But uh, Seattle won that one, five four. So they take an early one nil series lead in the games today. The New Jersey Devils are up against the Carolina Hurricanes, and uh, Carolina have an early one nil lead there halfway through the first period. And later today. We'll get the uh, Edmonton Oilers and the Vegas Golden Knights taking on their first match. Ah, the Oilers. The Oilers. Can it go to Canada? Can it go to Canada if it's not going to go to Toronto? Can it go to Edmonton? It's 11.31 here on SENZ. Yes, it is time, as Logan said, to get to Stump Smithy. So 0800-150811. 0800-150811 is our number. Um, and we're back to $50 today. So uh, Brian's waiting for your calls. Let's get stuck into it after the news here with Aroha. Tomorrow night from 9.30 on SENZ. Ian Smith's had a good match here. Stumped by Smithy. Ian Smith really is top class at his job. It's 11.34 here on SCNZ Mornings with Ian Smith, and it's time to play Stumped by Smithy, $50 TAB bonus bet. Up for grabs, the big jackpot was hit yesterday, Smithy, so we're back to the uh, back to the drawing board, as as it were. How are you feeling about this one? Yeah, um, okay, the money's gone down, so there's um, not quite as uh, much anxiety about it, but the intensity <laughs> will still be there. Uh, I can promise you that. Uh, I really enjoy it when it gets up around those uh, $200, $250 marks. So let's uh, take the first step there. Who's first in line? 
Yeah, I do love those high stakes. Well, first at the crease, we're going to my hometown, Tauranga. Craig, come in, buddy. How you doing? Yeah, good. How you guys doing? Uh, really good, Craig, uh, actually, today. So um, looking forward to um, the competition today. What are the categories for Craig? The categories to choose from today are football, golf, and the Stanley Cup playoffs. Take your pick, Craig. Oh, I have to be football. All right, good luck. Questions uh, courtesy of producer Brian. We'll see how you go here. First one, Erlen Harlan has slotted more goals than five EPL teams, including five-time league champions Chelsea. How many goals has Erlen scored this season? Uh, I, I did hear this the other day, how many he scored. Um, I reckon it's somewhere in the 30s. I'm going to go with 35. Just a couple of chips down the wicket. Oh. Right in the slot, and away it goes. Yeah, it was 34, and then he scored this morning. 35, Smithy. Yeah, he did, actually. And uh, one of the interesting things was uh, uh, they ran onto the field uh, to congratulate him at the end of the match, all the players and all the entourage, and then they gave him a guard of honour to come off, and uh, the fans appreciated that as well. And he ran through this guard of honour, and Guardiola was there himself, and all the, uh, the players and uh, support staff as well. So it was quite fitting. Then he turned and waved to the crowd. So... He knows how to play the game and he knows how to play to the crowd uh, and he has been special, yes. 35 goals. Beat Andy Cole, who uh, had 34 but scored them in a longer season. So dynamic, this fellow. Still with more to do. Yeah, unreal to watch. He is. Second question for you, Craig. How many wins do the Wellington Phoenix have in this year's A-League men's competition in the regular season? Sorry, did you say the Phoenix? Yeah. Uh, the Phoenix has oh, about nine, I think. Nine wins. Just a couple of chips down the wicket, right in the slot, and away it goes. Right, I, I can see why he picked football, Smithy. Yes, uh, incredibly well researched, uh, old uh, Craig from Tauranga. Of course, uh, Craig, we know very well. He comes into the show on uh, a number of occasions um, who are phoning in yeah, or playing. Not, not or, or yesterday te- for the 250, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, hard luck. Uh, yeah, bad luck, I think. Uh, didn't go too far from you, though, no. just to Cambridge. So, um, OK, yeah, let's, well uh, let's, have a, yeah, let, let's have a look uh, at question three, shall we? All right. Well, I'm just going to do a question on the fly here. I'm just retooling your question a bit here, Brian, because I kind of feel like with Craig's knowledge of football here, might be a little too easy. Uh, what team? Oh, go on, go on. Nah, mate. Nah. <laughs> I'm giving you a test. Uh, what team is second on the French League One ladder? Oh, he's second. I don't know. Um, PSG. One of the worst things I have ever seen done on a cricket field. No, sick was. That's why I French changed it because PSG are first. Not my wheelhouse. <laughs> PSG at first, yeah, they might lose. Um, they might be losing Messi by the sound of it with a deal with um, Saudi Arabia. Uh, look, I, I've got no idea either. Um, I'm going to go with um, Olympic Marseille. Just a couple of chips down the wicket. What? Right in the Are you kidding me? And away it goes. Absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Are you kidding me? Oh, no, I'm not. PSG uh, 75 points. Marseille have 70. 
Second. I was going to go for I was going to go for Brest because we took them in the uh, in the multi yesterday against Nantes and they won. Um, so I was going to go for Brest, but uh, honestly, um, just picked that one out. Um, so Craig, unfortunately, <laughs> the fifty right goes. Back. It goes to a handy tomorrow morning, so uh, get back on the blower. Kerry from Manawa 2 was uh, waiting patiently. Uh, Kerry, uh, you come in again tomorrow. I see Ed was there. A uh, number of calls. Reed from Gore was back in. A uh, number of callers from uh, around the country. So uh, be back in uh, tomorrow, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for your opportunity to win $100 going into the weekend. It is coming up to 11.40 yes, uh, here on SENZ, Logan. Yeah, just be glad you didn't say breast because they're 14th. 14th. Oh, well, there you go. Uh, and I uh, mm, don't even know why I picked them in the first place, but there was just, I kind of figured them against Nantes. Oh, I don't know why. Uh, and they got up one. So uh, there you go. And uh, just uh, highlighting our multi uh, for the rest of today and tomorrow morning, the Blue Jays to beat the Red Sox, Somerset to beat Northampton Cricket um, in England, and uh, also in England, of course, Brighton and Manchester United to draw at $3.60. So that's a $9.44 uh, possibility. We shall be back shortly. In agriculture, covering your equipment, parts, and service needs to help you succeed in your field. Summer or winter, he's the voice of sport in Aotearoa. This is Mornings with Ian Smith on SENZ. Bones from Wainui Omata has texted in uh, with an issue that we're going to sort through, Bones. Uh, we've got our text looking at it as we speak. Kevin has texted in and said, uh, Louis, this is a message for Louis a little bit earlier on, um, McNabb race one onto McNabb race three, an all-up win, um, and it will go close. Uh, same Kevin has uh, come in and said, uh, watch the Black Caps. They played well. Young and Blundell were very correct and steady, a bit unlucky with the runouts. Uh, middle order, very, very slow. Uh, McConkey wasn't though 64 off 45 uh, 6 fours and 2 sixes on debut Pakistan will have known absolutely nothing about him they will now um, he was at number 6 um, a monopoly player as you say didn't disappoint as usual it's uh, bewildering and uh, now he's at 6 um, and that is um, the monopoly player of course I think he's remu- uh, referring to uh, Henry Nichols there who did have an opportunity at number 6 as a specialist batsman to go on and uh, contribute to us winning that game in other words, close it out, which a number six should be able to do. Uh, couldn't do it. Uh, that one, uh, I, I, I continue to argue. Oh, no, I don't. I, I just give up. Ian, get over it. Um, that will win you games. Not uh, McConkie also bowled very well. Uh, 10 overs for 45, one wicket. Very good performance from him. If you pick the same number six batsman tomorrow night, uh, he has to be related. Uh, that's from Kevin uh, Steady. That's not from me and uh, for people at New Zealand Cricket, but it is a feeling. Uh, I think, and uh, I've got to stop it. I've got to stop it, Kevin, uh, because it's starting to irk me ever so much. Yeah, we've had uh, an interesting morning on those cricket grounds. was a good thing. And, uh, uh, Logan, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity here. Uh, if you had an opportunity for a, a poster person, uh, someone, and this is on the back of what Jamie Wall said earlier in the week uh, when he came on the panel and said, look, uh, surely Ruby Tui is not just the face of women's rugby. Ruby Tui is the face of rugby. Uh, and New Zealand, that, that got me thinking. I mean, uh, Brad has come in a uh, little, I, I would imagine it's a little bit tongue in cheek. Uh, my poster boy would be Mark Robinson in a clown suit. Uh, so <laughs> that, that, that's Brad's feeling there. Um, and um, yeah, so we read them all out here on SENZ. Sorry, Mark. Um, so uh, yeah, what, what would you, uh, what you be thinking? I often do wonder, considering they're down the hallway, do they actually ever listen in uh, to some of the things we say? 
Probably not because uh, they might uh, be knocking down the door sometimes with some of the things we do say. Uh, yeah, I've been thinking about this all morning, Smithy. Uh, I've been talking about it with Brian. It's a really good topic, uh, actually. Just sort of thinking about it in a World Cup year as well. Brian was was going along with your um, Artie Salvia uh, pick, which I think is, is definitely a solid pick. And then, I, I mean, my favorite player, there's no secret, it's Brad Weber, but, you know, he's kind of getting towards the uh, tail end of his career. He's a great guy, great halfback, but probably not really, you know, poster material. No offense, Brad. Uh, I reckon Damien McKenzie. Sort of the okay. the face of the future face of rugby. I mean, he's you know he's still got a few more years in him. I I love guys like Sam Whitelock who have been around for a long time and really you know stand for what the black jersey means and what it means to the players and what it means to you know rugby fans around the country. But when I sort of think of you know likability, skill, the dynamicness, there's a lot there in Damien McKenzie that I think is marketable. Okay, very very interesting. Um, I, I like I like McKenzie, uh, but I think you've got to have a guy who's a fixture in the side. Uh, I think you've got to have a guy who's going to start. I think you've got to have a guy who um, has had a recent record or a long history. Damien McKenzie, of course, uh, went and had his uh, playing sabbatical in Japan, so he left New Zealand. Uh, he's 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 had a fantastic season. There's no doubt about it. And he does. I mean, it's the kind of guy you want to go and see play just in case. Um, but I, I kind of, I, I like the Artie Savier role because I think he fits a, a, a lot of, it ticks a lot of boxes there. As I said, he's hard. Um, he's committed. Uh, he will play through the pain barrier. Um, he often plays bandaged up like Cardigan Bay. I mean, he is just <laughs> everything, that is, everything that is symptomatic of what the all-black jersey should be. Um, and he's very, very popular. Um, you know, no one would ever begrudge Artie Savier being the all-black captain as such. Um, but I, I, you know, I, for me, I think Artie Savier would my, would be my uh, my face. Although Sam Whitelock is undeniable in that regard, absolutely undeniable as well, and a very very hard face uh, for us to sort of uh, not pay some allegiance to. I mean, he just just never doesn't want to play. No, he's amazing. No, uh, I did like this idea that I think a couple of uh, listeners brought up is of having two, having you know one from the men's game and one from the women's game, and someone suggested Sarah Hidney, which is an incredible choice. I mean, just the way she represents New Zealand day in day out, what she means for women's rugby, what she means for the sevens program. Great option. Uh, if I'm going to put in a favourite, I mean, I'm going to pick Michaela Blyde uh, every day of the week. It's unfortunate that she's injured at the moment, but she's always a mainstay of the sevens. Uh, but then I guess it goes to your argument. Are we? Are you thinking more 15s, or are you including sevens in this mix? What do you reckon? I think it has to be 15s. I really do. I think still test rugby is the ultimate form uh, for me, so it has to be a, a 15s player. I, I get where you're coming from with Michaela Blyde. Give her the ball and an inch of space, gone, absolutely gone. Um, so fantastic finisher, one of the best in, uh, in all rugby. But um, I'm not quite sure Michaela Blyde fits the bill as the face of rugby in New Zealand. Certainly uh, Sarah Hirini, um, very recognisable, very, very popular, a genuine leader, highly respected um, um, in, in rugby circles and outside. And of course... Um, Will Jordan's just uh, Barry's just come in. Will Jordan, well, uh, I would like to see him in an all-black jersey. Uh, Barry, that would be the the highly desired effect there. 
Will Jordan coming back from uh, this head knock issue that he's got. Let's hope it's soon and let's hope when he does come back uh, it leaves him alone. Uh, right, thanks very much um, for the efforts this morning. I, I think we've uh, pretty much covered every base. Liverpool 1, Fulham 0 uh, in the EPL and uh, as we said Manchester City 3 and West Ham 0. Um, so uh, there you go. Oh look, uh, Sean's come in with an interesting idea. These days you could have a mix and match Artie's body and Sam Whitelock's head. Uh, that sounds like the $6 million rugby player to me, Sean. Thank you very much. We'll be back with Sam, who's in for staff very shortly.